You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. So John chapter 10 is where we'll be today in verse 22 is where we'll eventually read from. I apologize for wearing shorts today. I don't normally preach on Sunday mornings in shorts, um, mainly because one time I had a visitor tell me that he was offended. I was wearing jeans that day, but I had like holes, but they were like the kind of jeans you buy that have a hole already in them. And uh, it was just offensive to him. And it's like he slipped me like $40 and said, I need you to buy some jeans. If I ever come back, I want to see you wearing something different. So <laughs> I don't ever want what I wear to be offensive. I want the gospel to be offensive if, it's, if anything's going to be offensive. Um, I'm wearing shorts today, though. We went to Snowbird and uh, went whitewater rafting. And um, my leg is just really jacked up from having too much fun on the... Uh, the river. We heard a great sermon on leprosy, and um, I honestly think I've contracted leprosy on my leg. Um, I currently can't see my ankles because my foot is so swollen. So, um, yeah, that's why I'm wearing shorts today because I couldn't get my shoe on this morning, and uh, my leg's just really irritated. So, I felt like shorts were going to be far more comfortable to teach in this morning. So, um, I'll be back in pants next week, hopefully, Lord willing, <laughs> unless it's Worse than than it is, then hopefully it will be on the healing road soon. So John chapter 10, last week we looked at the Good Shepherd uh, account where Jesus describes uh, just the guidance, protection, and provision that he provides to his sheep. We talked about um, the fact that his sheep hear his voice and that we need to prepare our ears to hear the Good Shepherd as believers, that um, he talks about speaking in a voice that we can understand we can differentiate from false shepherds, um, so we have that, that great privilege. We talked about submitting our decisions to follow the good shepherd, um, that he gives us both immediate guidance and long-term direction, and we saw that picture of Jesus functioning like the door to the fold and sheep coming in only if he allows them to and then exiting uh, with his guidance, protection. We talked about him uh, leading the sheep both immediately and then long-term knowing exactly where they're going, right? And so we we even looked at um, Psalm 23, and we talked about the life that we enjoy as sheep, that um, we're saved from the destructive results of sin, and we're saved to an abundant type of life, is what Jesus talks about here in John chapter 10. And we see that abundant life described even further in Psalm 23, that that good shepherd psalm where we talk about, or or, or the passage talks about us um, following after the good shepherd, and we won't be individuals that want, right? That um, he is our good shepherd, we shall not want. And we talked about what Paul describes in Philippians, that he's learned the secret of contentment, that whether he's brought low or whether he is given much, he's He's always in a state of contentment, that he trusts in the goodness of God. He trusts in the provision of God. Whether he's providing a lot or a little at the time, his, his status doesn't change. His joy doesn't change. And um, so we talked about living the abundant life being the type of life where we're constantly content with whatever God gives to us. When he's carrying us through the sh- uh, valley of the shadow of death, we're content. When we're laying down in green pastures, we're content right, that he's that type of shepherd, that he protects us through the valley of the shadow of death, and then he shows us that great provision by causing us to lay down in green pastures. We talked about him being the good shepherd and entrusting our circumstances to that, that character piece of being a good shepherd, that he demonstrates love for the sheep by knowing each one intimately. He demonstrates his love for the sheep by sacrificing his life 
He demonstrates his power by raising himself from the dead, something that he talks about at the end there of um, that last section in verse 21, that he demonstrates his global vision by including other sheep into the fold. Remember we said that this is where we get included, that it's not just Jews, but Gentiles as well being brought into the fold. We said, why would we not listen to him, right? The, the end of chapter, or the middle of chapter 10, uh, the people are choosing not to listen to him. Uh, and we're saying instead, why would we not listen to him? Uh, why would we not yield to him based on the things that he's presenting about himself? And so I left you with some questions last week. Uh, what are you doing to familiarize yourself with the voice of the Lord so that you hear it properly in your life? Are you um, putting yourself around scripture, putting yourself into scripture enough to where his voice is very familiar to you so that when you hear others speaking to you or you read other books or um, listen to podcasts or hear other sermons that, that you're very familiar with what is, is of God and what is not of God. We talked about uh, the typical process for making decisions. Does it reflect a desire to follow the shepherd? Are we seeking to uh, gain wisdom from others so that we know how to follow the shepherd better? And then lastly, we said, does your life reflect the joy of a Psalm 23 sheep? Are you the type of individual who is learning the secret of contentment? You're not a, a sheep who is constantly wanting. Instead, you're finding satisfaction in the pastures that he does lead you to. Are you giving other people reason to listen to him? Or do we carry ourselves in such a way where we're very discontent and we're, we're very unsatisfied and we lack joy to the point that an unbeliever would say, why would I listen to your Jesus? Why would I follow after your Jesus? You don't seem uh, to be enjoying an abundant life yourself. Right, We come now to verse 22 in John chapter 10, and there's probably a two-month gap between verses 21 and 22. Um, so just to kind of set the stage there, there is a time break between those two verses. So um, we're kind of resetting. Jesus has spent some time doing some other things, and he's come back to Jerusalem during the time of the Feast of Dedication. Okay, We're going to go through this passage verse by verse um, so I'm not going to take the time to read it now. We've already read it earlier today, but we are going to cover every single verse today in these 21 uh, verses. All right, uh, summary sentence for today. Because of the unity enjoyed by Jesus with his Father, we can have full confidence in the security of our salvation, realizing it is based on the greatness of God and not the goodness of us. Because of the unity enjoyed by Jesus with his Father, and that's a theme that runs through these verses, that Jesus and the Father are one, we can have full confidence in the security of our salvation. Because what we find in this passage is that our salvation is based on the greatness of God and not the goodness of us. For our kids, because Jesus is God and he is so great, he can save us and give us eternal life. Because Jesus is God and he is so great, he can save us and give us eternal life. So that unity of Jesus and the Father gives us full confidence in the security of our own salvation. It helps us to realize that it's based off the greatness of God and not the goodness of us. As you continue to write that down, I'll give you just a couple of points of introduction to this passage. It's uh, the discussion takes place during the Feast of Dedication. This is a feast that you won't find mentioned in the Old Testament. There were many feasts that the Jewish people engaged in, but the Feast of Dedication initiated and, and began during that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? So um, the, the Apocrypha book contains some historical accounts 
of what took place in that 500 years of silence. So from the book of Malachi uh, all the way to the Gospels, there's, there's a big time gap there where we don't have any uh, direct revelation from God about what's happening there. We do have historical books that are reliable, and it's during that time period that the Feast of Dedication uh, comes about. It was a time of celebrating the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated during that time period. So uh, Israel had been attacked, the, the temple had been desecrated, the pig had been slaughtered, uh, a lot of unholy things had taken place in the temple. And so once they had found deliverance and victory, there was a rededication period, and so it became the Feast of Dedication. It's what we know of today as Hanukkah. So what we're reading here, the passage even talks about it being wintertime. This encounter takes place during our Christmas period, okay? So the time of Hanukkah is the, the celebration of what I just described to you, and so it's taking place here in this passage. So um, just kind of give you a, a context of when this took place. Um, the, the incarnation of Jesus is once again a topic of discussion in this passage for the, the Jewish people. They're, they're wrestling and really struggling with the idea that Jesus, who is a, a man in their mindset, can be God, right? So the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus, the idea that Jesus is both God and man, that he's God in human form, it's a very difficult doctrine when we think of uh, other, um, other religions because they, they typically reject this doctrine, that Jesus can't be man and God that they can't merge the two. And so many other religions will redefine what this means, that, that Jesus is not God in human form, right? Incarnation and the resurrection are two key doctrines that, that contribute to our salvation. The fact that Jesus came as God to be man, he can serve as the sacrifice that we need to forgive us. And then that resurrection piece that he comes back from the dead justifying us, verifying that his sacrifice has been accepted by his father, giving us hope too of future resurrection. Both those doctrines come under uh, heavy scrutiny by skeptics. Um, when we were up at Snowbird, we got to sit in a breakout session where Zach talked about um, the, the historical reliability of the resurrection, that skeptics admit certain events take place, but they deny that the resurrection occurred. Right? The skeptic can't believe in the resurrection because to believe in the resurrection is to admit that everything that Jesus says is true and therefore it leaves you with only one conclusion and that's to follow him. Right? And the skeptic doesn't want to follow him. All right? um, in this passage, I, in reading it and studying it and reflecting upon it this week, um, I, kept, I kept coming back to verse 24 where it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, right? So what I want to do today is I want to, to really strive to keep things very simple today. Um, I don't want to get bogged down in too much uh, higher level thinking, higher level theology. I want to speak very plainly to you today about what this passage has to say. Um, the, the Jews were asking for it, and it was not something that they were lacking. They had been spoken to plainly. Right? But if there's ever a part of me that is spoken uh, in a way that's not plain, I want to make sure that today is plainly spoken, that there's very clear understanding by everybody in here what this passage has to say. Okay? So I kind of approached uh, my study time a little bit differently. I, I did my normal uh, reading and reflecting and uh, referencing uh, with commentaries and, and that type of thing. But when it came to actually writing down my notes, I did it more 
like what I've done for our, our D groups recently, where I've, I'm reading through the passage that we're studying as a church together. I'm writing down truths that are very clear from this passage, and then also coming up with what I believe to be application points that flow out of those truths. So today's notes, today's outline is, is what I would be presenting if we were doing a D group on John chapter 10, verse 21 through 42. If I was to share with my group, this is, this is what I would share with my group. These are the things that really stand out to me, jump out to me from this passage. So I'm gonna give you six truths that I think are very clear in this passage and then um, three actions to take uh, away from those truths. Okay, so let's jump right in. Um, We'll start by reading in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. All right, first point that I want you to see in regards to the truths to know, that gospel rejection is almost never due to a lack of clarity. Gospel rejection is almost never due to a lack of clarity. For our kids, people reject Jesus because they don't want to follow him. What's happening here? The Jews are once again coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you not the Messiah? Speak to us. Tell us plainly what, what, what you're thinking, who you are, right? Jesus responds and says, you're not lacking clarity about this. Your, your question isn't a result of me not being clear in, in who I am or how the gospel works, right? And that, that's, uh, that should be a freeing thing for us when we see how this passage unfolds, that the, the gospel rejection that we experience, people that you work with, uh, family members, um, people in your neighborhood, people that you're trying to share the gospel with who reject it, take comfort in the fact that it is almost never due to a lack of clarity on your part trying to present the gospel, right? Because when, when we are most clear with the gospel, it is still rejected oftentimes. And Jesus explains to us why in this passage, that they are not his sheep. They're not his sheep. They're not going to respond to the gospel no matter how clear it is. Jesus had been clear about his identity through his words and his works, right? Like he's not trying to veil the gospel here. He says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's not trying to veil who he is here. He has spoken very clearly, and he has demonstrated through his actions exactly who he is. He says, there's, there's no further clarity to give to you. You know you've seen and you've rejected it. You, you aren't interested in following me, and it's because you're not my sheep. It's spiritual blindness and hardness that are the culprits here, not a poor presentation of the gospel. Furthermore, they aren't asking this question of him. They are not asking him to clarify, to tell them if he is the Messiah or not, because they want to believe. Instead, they are asking this question so that they can condemn him. 
right? They are not confused about this. What they want is full clarity to be shared with those that are listening outside of them so that they can seize him, so that they can stone him, or at least arrest him and put him to death, right? So their motivation is not, man, we came last week, we heard your sermon, but we're still really confused about it. Can you just answer some questions for us, right? They know who he's claiming to be. What they want is to him, have him once again make it plainly known so that they can then justify the action that they want to take. Gospel rejection is almost never due to a lack of clarity. Now, does that mean that we should not strive to be clear in presenting the gospel? Absolutely not, right? We should absolutely think through, what does the Bible say? Who am I speaking to? And how do I connect them with that, right? And I have to think through who my audience is when I teach, right? Uh, This year, I took over fourth and fifth grade in addition to sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I've had the privilege of doing chapel one time for fourth and fifth grade, um, and a couple of times this year for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Doesn't seem like it would be a huge age difference, but it is. And I can assure you that what chapel looked like for fourth and fifth grade is way different than what it looks like for sixth and seventh grade when I teach it. Um, It's just different because I recognize there's a different audience and I want to connect them to the gospel in a way that they can hear it and understand it. But I can walk away when I've kind of done my due diligence to share the gospel in a way that is clear I can walk away knowing rejection is not based on a lack of clarity. Jesus says, there, there's been clarity presented. There has been plainness presented to these people. They reject it because they're not part of my sheep, right? Gospel rejection is almost never due to a lack of clarity. Number two, gospel rejection should never be viewed as gospel failure. Gospel rejection should never be viewed as gospel failure. Their lack of understanding and their subsequent uh, lack of belief is explained by the fact that these people are not his sheep. Notice Jesus isn't concerned that any of his sheep are being lost in this moment because they are failing to believe in him or failing to follow him. There's no concern on Jesus' part here. He's already assured us that all that are supposed to come will come, right? So he is, he is piling on responsibility here in their rejection that will allow God to receive glory when wrath and punishment is administered to those that, that, that continue in their unbelief. But Jesus does not see at any point gospel failure. He's not panicking, thinking, man, my whole purpose in coming was to save and these people are rejecting we, we have failed in our agenda, Father. Like we have failed in rescuing these people. There, there's, there's no concern on his part as though the gospel has failed. Instead, what we see, this lack of uh, spiritual understanding, not due to a, a, a lack of clarity on Jesus's part, but their lack of spiritual understanding and their uh, lack of belief, it's explained not in a way that makes us think that Jesus doesn't know how to communicate the gospel very clearly, even though they're saying, tell us plainly. Instead, we see their rejection, their lack of belief is due to the fact that you are not among my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. 
They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Third truth that I want you to see here is that salvation comes to those who are first known by him. Salvation comes to those who are first known by him. We've said this before in the Gospel of John, that salvation initiates with God, not with us. That we don't initiate our own belief. We don't initiate our own conviction. We we are reliant upon God coming to us first. The Holy Spirit coming to us first. The Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin, drawing us to him, helping us to see the glories of Christ so that we come running to him versus away from him so that we're crying out in worship for him rather than crucify him. That's something that God initiates in us, right? Those that are rejecting of him are not his sheep. Those who respond to him are those who are first known by him. First known by him. And it, it should be a comforting thing to us to know that all of this falls under a wise God who possesses far greater wisdom than we do. Uh, It's comforting to know when you are laboring for the salvation and the change of individuals that it relies completely on the greatness of God and not the goodness of your gospel presentation, right? I'm sitting at Snowbird and the gospel's being preached. Uh, Songs are being sung. An environment of worship is being created. Some kids are taking advantage of that. Some are not. Right? And so I'm sitting back and watching and praying that God would change hearts, that God would bring about conviction where needed. I know, I know we've got kids in our, in our eighth grade that don't, that don't believe, um, that they don't understand, not because it hasn't been plainly presented. I mean, we walked through, we walked through the Romans road piece by piece two weeks ago, right? Like we walked them through the gospel. It has been plainly presented, but their eyes are still covered over right? There's still a rejection of the gospel. And so it's comforting for me to sit back and watch and and see some responding, some not responding to know that this this is all based on what God decides to do here and not on the speaker, not on the worship leader and how good they do, right? It's not based on that. Rejection from the gospel comes because they're not part of the sheep. Response to the gospel comes because they are part of the sheep. They were first known by him. Number four, salvation is applied to those who hear his voice and respond in obedience. It comes to those who are first known by him. Then it's applied to those who hear his voice and respond in obedience. All right, some people take these, these truths and really jack them up into thinking that, okay, God is so in control, we don't have to share the gospel. That the sheep that are supposed to come are going to come. The ones that don't come were never his sheep anyways. And so we can just sit back and watch and see what happens. There's no role or responsibility on our part because God is sovereign. God is in control. And if we err too far on that side, we miss everything else that's presented in Scripture, right? The fact is is that in Romans chapter 10, people don't get saved unless they hear. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then will they call on him 
in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Because verse 13 said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Paul goes on to say, they have to hear of the Lord in order to call on him to be saved. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Right, there's this, there's this huge responsibility for the gospel to go forth through human mouth. It's how God chooses to communicate the gospel, right? God doesn't choose to give everyone a angelic vision at night in their sleep where the gospel is plainly presented to them to where they wake up the next morning and become a Christian. I don't think that ever happens. Do I think that God sometimes speaks to individuals through visions and dreams? I do, because I think there's precedent for that in Scripture. I think there's less need for that now that Scripture has been collected and put together and contained in the 66 books that we have. But I don't have any problem believing that God speaks to individuals in visions and dreams overseas. But I will always believe that he cuts off that communication, that vision, short of that individual needing to go and hear the gospel from another human being. Because that's absolutely what happens in, in, in the book of Acts, right? When Cornelius is doing everything that he can to fear God and to follow God and to do what God wants, he gets a vision that says, hey, you don't have everything, Cornelius. You're, you're missing an element here. You don't, you don't know things that are happening with Jesus. And it would have been very easy for the angel to say, and here's what you need to know, right? But what does he say? He says, you gotta talk to this guy, Peter. And, and, he, and he goes to Peter and, and tells Peter, you got to talk to this guy Cornelius. And like, there's this supernatural meeting that takes place between Christian Peter and wants to be a Christian Cornelius so that the gospel can be presented so that Cornelius responds and has faith in Jesus, right? God chooses to use human beings to communicate the gospel. It is a, an unbelievable privilege for us to be included in these plans that are being described here. Sheep coming, sheep following, that we get to be a part as a sheep, right? Which, which breaks away from the, the traditional analogy of what sheep are capable of doing. We get to be sheep that call other sheep to follow our shepherd, right? It's how God's just ordained his program to work. The gospel has to be heard. And that's what Jesus says here. They're known by me. They hear my voice and they follow me, is how he describes salvation here for, for these sheep. He tells the people, you're rejecting, not because I haven't plainly spoken to you, but because you're not part of the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Hearing is a necessary part of salvation, and we need to see our, our role in communicating the gospel so that others can hear it, Right? Obedience is a supernatural response to true salvation. Obedience is a supernatural response to true salvation. It's a change in allegiance to who you're following. So when true salvation takes place, an individual doesn't reject the gospel, they respond to it. They've heard it, they understand it, and Jesus says, they follow me if they're really my sheep there's this supernatural fruit that takes place, right? It's not just a head knowledge or a head agreement that, that, 
Jesus is the good shepherd. There's a commitment that says, I wanna follow this good shepherd. I want, to, I want to follow where these other sheep are going. I wanna get on this path that sometimes goes through the valley of shadow of death, frequently ends up in green pastures, right? Like I want to be a part of that abundant life. I want to, to not go the route of sin and destruction and death. The enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy is what John tells us. Jesus tells us here in John chapter 10, right? Salvation occurs when we are first known by him, when we hear his voice, when we respond in obedience as a supernatural response to true salvation. Then number five, salvation results in freedom and security. It results in freedom and security. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. A couple things that are happening here. One, we're forgiven from our sins, freeing us from condemnation because look what he says. They will never perish. Right? People that perish are people that are still under sin and condemnation. And we've been set free from that. Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from that. So we can't perish because our sin has been removed. Far as the east is from the west. Right? Some of us have been saved for so long, we, we lose the appreciation factor for that. Right? That, that our sins both prior to Christ and then post coming to Christ. And those things are washed and forgiven, right? We're forgiven from our sins, freeing us from condemnation. We will not perish. We are also given eternal life that cannot be revoked. One of the, one of the strongest arguments for the security of the believer for me is that to be given eternal life means that you can't take it back, right? It, it doesn't say that, hey, if you make it to the end faithfully, then you will be given eternal life. It says you've been given eternal life. By definition, you can't give me eternal life and then take it away because then it was never eternal to begin with, right? Like it was, it was, um, it was contingent on something. That's not eternal life. If you give me eternal life, by definition, it can never end. It can never be taken back or else you never really gave it to me. We are given eternal life and it can't be revoked and it's gifted to us. It's not merited by us, meaning we didn't earn it. Therefore, we can't forfeit it either, right? It's a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We didn't pass a class or, or take a test or, or uh, accomplish a list, right? It was not given to us because of something that we did. It was gifted to us. Therefore, it can't be forfeited by us because it was never given to us based on any merit of our own. The fact that it was given to us, by definition, eternal life cannot be taken back. It can't be taken back or else we never had it. If you have it, you can't lose it. If you lose it, 
in parentheses, you never really had it. So why do people, why do Christians not want to believe this doctrine? I mean, man, this seems like the no-brainer doctrine that if like there's any verses that hint at this, we'd want to grab hold and squeeze tightly to those verses and say, oh, absolutely. Like no matter how much I mess up, I don't lose my salvation. Why would Christians not want to hold tightly to that? Why would you have denominations that say they believe the gospel, but then are either loosely holding to this or not holding to it at all and say, hey, doesn't mean that you're definitely going to get to heaven. Like, it's great that you've responded to the gospel, but there's still some things that have to play out for us to really see if you really, if you really are saved or not. It's because of the fact that we have so many people who claim to be Christ followers and then abandon him that there's confusion as to what do we do with these people, right? Like, we, we, we don't want to believe because it doesn't make sense to the gospel to say that they are still Christians when they've abandoned, Right? Like we don't want them to be able to defame grace in that way. We don't want them to, to trample on the blood of Christ in that way. We don't want them to, to look like they, they think that where, um, where grace abounds, that sin can, sin can abound all the more. But it's also really hard to, 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 to say that somebody who has looked like a Christian for a very long period of time was never a Christian, right? So I think it's easier for some people to say, oh, they were a Christian, then they lost it because they did this. But man, that opens the door up for what are some of the this things that you can do to lose your salvation? And how can you really enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding? How can you really claim the glories of being sealed by the Holy Spirit if there's wiggle room for you to detach yourself from Christ? And what he says here is that you cannot be snatched away, which means you can't snatch yourself away you can't, you, can't, you can't revoke the commitment that you've made because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So you can't willfully give eternal life back. You would never have the desires to do so if you were truly a Christian. We, we all the time have people who have claimed Christ and then give him back. But I believe what this passage is teaching is that they never really had him. They were never really part of the flock. They posed like it. They resembled it but they never really had it because you can't be snatched from his hands. We're secured in the hands and make sure you get this, not just by one part of the Trinity, but by two parts of the Trinity. And then we can see in other passages, particularly in Ephesians, where we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that technically all three essences of the Trinity are clinging to us and preserving us in our salvation, right? So, Really hard to understand the Trinity, so I'm not going to even attempt to because what did I say at the beginning? We're trying to be very plain today in what we're talking about here, right? But what Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And when you think about um, walking your kids across the street, walking across a parking lot, right? First thing out of a parent's, mind, out of a parent's mouth is, hey, we got to have hands, right? Everybody's got to hold somebody's hand, right? And the more kids you have, the less hands you have, you have to start substituting other hands, right? So 
I can be walking and I can have Mally in one hand and AJ in one hand and poor Abram has to hold AJ's hand and that's, that's his security blanket is AJ's hand, right? Because I don't have enough hands to hold all of my kids when we walk across the parking lot if, if Lauren's not there. But there's a sense of security that we feel when we say we've got hands on each other. And I don't ask my kids to, to just hold my hand. I'm typically grabbing their wrist and holding them to where they can't snatch themselves out of my hand, right? And Jesus gives us this beautiful picture of it's not just him holding our hand, the Father's holding our other hand so that we're doubly safe from ever being snatched away. But we can't get away and nobody can take us away from him. Because we've got, we've got the Father and the Son on both sides of us, right? Back when we just had AJ, right, AJ was really secure walking across the parking lot when Lauren was on one side and I was on the other. Like, he's not going anywhere, right? Nobody's getting to him because we both have his hand. All the more secure are we when we think about Jesus and the Father holding on to us. We're secured in the hands of the Father and the Son He holds on to us and we cannot be ripped away. We cannot be ripped away from his clutches. We are totally secure in him. Number six, the promises related to our salvation are based on his greatness and not our goodness. The promises that he's making here that I'm going to give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of our hands. He's making promises here, and we can trust that those promises will be kept because of his greatness, not our goodness. For our kids, Jesus is able to keep his promises to us because he is great. Look what it says there. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Our source of preservation and perseverance and security lies with God and not ourselves. So me making it to the end is not contingent on my goodness. It's contingent on God's greatness. And that's worth trusting. Right? It's a guarantee that I have eternal life because I'm now in the the arms of him. I'm I'm being held by him. I'm not hanging on by my goodness. I'm hanging on by his greatness. He's greater than all, which means that if we're truly a believer, and that's the key point, because there are going to be individuals who are not Christians, who claim Christ, who there are things in their life that, that end up being greater than their shallow commitment because they're not truly Christians. So temptation comes, trials come, whatever comes, the, the things of this world, they end up doing what Demas does. And he walks away from the faith and says, I'm going to go this, I'm, I'm tired of following the shepherd, I'm going to follow the shepherd, right? If you're truly a Christian though, he's greater than any temptation that can come our way. He's greater than any enemy that can come our way. He's greater than any doubt that can come our way. Romans chapter 8 is a passage that really reinforces this concept of not being able to be snatched away. 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Nothing can snatch us. Nothing can pervert us and deceive us to where we would leave Jesus if we're truly a Christian. It just doesn't happen. And there will be deception so great that if possible, it would deceive the elect, but it's not possible. Can't snatch, you can't snatch true sheep away from the shepherd. We are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. He won't let go of us. These are the truths that Jesus communicates here in John chapter 10. They say, speak plainly to us. You haven't, you haven't told us if you're the Messiah or not. Jesus says, I have. I've spoken it. I've shown it to you. It's been very plain. But in his grace and his mercy, he continues to speak plainly to them, continues to share with them. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Three actions that we take in response to all these truths that we've seen. Number one, we have to make a decision about Jesus. We either follow him or we crucify him. We don't typically speak in that type of language. It's either follow him or don't follow him. But the book of Hebrews talks about when you have been exposed to the gospel, you've tasted of it, you've seen it, you have full understanding of it, right? It has been plainly presented to you. If you reject it, you are guilty of basically crucifying Jesus once again. We need to make a decision about Jesus. We either follow him or we crucify him. There's really no in-between here. Either follow him or crucify him. The first group of people that we see here, they reject him. Jesus calls them again to believe. So that's where there's tension there about like, well, they're not even part of the sheep. Like, doesn't seem like they can be saved. And yet Jesus continues to labor to share the gospel with them and call them to believe. Because he goes on to tell them, um, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Right? He continues to call these unbelievers to believe. But they're not interested in believing in him. They're not even considering the evidence before them. They are denouncing him completely on the conclusion piece. They're unwilling to assess the explanation. So they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of my works are you stoning me for? 
Like, are, are you ready to stone me now because of the Sabbath healing? What is it? Like, what's your reason for stoning me? And they said, it's not for a good work that we're going to do this, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Right, so they're, they're critiquing the climax of his message that, that he is the Messiah, that he is God. And they're saying, oh, that can't be possible. But they are believing that somebody is coming who will fit this bill. And instead of evaluating all the evidence, the words and the works that make it abundantly clear that he is who he claims to be, they simply fast forward and say, oh, we got a man here claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. We have to kill him. Remember, I told you earlier that it's only blasphemy if you're not God. You can claim to be God and not be blasphemous if you are God. It's only blasphemous if you're not. And Jesus is saying, look, the works and the words back up the fact that I'm not blasphemous here. His works and words verify his statement. It makes him not a blasphemer. He challenges them to assess the unity that he's demonstrating with the Father. He says, look, if you're not willing to believe me, at least look at the Father At least look at the works that I'm doing for the Father and believe those. See that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Reject the Father if we're not unified. They come back to this idea that, no, we're going to do this because you being a man make yourself God. They've kind of got a reverse understanding of the incarnation, right? He's not a man making himself God. He's God making himself a man. They've, they've, they've misunderstood the doctrine of the incarnation, right? Like, it's blowing their mind that here's a man who claims to be God. What's actually happening is here's God who has taken on the form of a man, right? And so it, it, it's something that they can't, they can't come to grips with. He's answered them clearly again, and they've moved again towards rejection. They want to arrest him or stone him. They just want to get rid of him. And really, when we've been exposed to the gospel, that's our only choices. It's either to follow him, submit to him, or to crucify him because he doesn't leave room for an in-between stance about him. The things that he calls us to, we either have to follow him or, or get rid of him. We can't have him just kind of staying around and making these type of claims. The last group of people, though, in this chapter... They handle it differently. What it says in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You got a group of people here that that are much like us in that they don't have signs that they've visibly seen. They've just been told about Jesus. And what they've determined is that everything they've heard about him is true. Everything they've heard about him is true. It says that they believed in him because what's been told about them has been determined to be true. They do assess the content. They do assess the evidence. They say, hey, when we look at this, Everything that we've heard about him is true. Everything that he said is true. So now when he says he's the Messiah, now when he says he's God, we believe him and we're going to follow him. The previous group rejects him. Even when he tries to argue from the Old Testament, like he tries to, 
to get them to, to come off their hard stance about the title. And he, and he goes to Psalm 82 and talks about how even in the Old Testament, you've got human sinful beings being given this title of gods because they are functioning as an extension of God through the justice that they're supposed to bring. All right? So he says, you guys don't get torn up about the fact that this title is being thrown around towards sinful man based on the office that they hold. Why get so torn up about the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm claiming this title for myself and I'm not part of that sinful group, right? That, that I am more than sinful man trying to be an extension of God, but you don't seem to have a problem with that title being thrown around towards sinful man. Why is it so hard for you to embrace the idea of me being the son of God? We have to make a decision. Do we believe him or not believe him? And if we believe him, we have to follow him. And everything in our life should be filtered through this perspective of what does Jesus, my shepherd, desire me to do? How do I follow him best in the place that I work, in the people that I come in contact with, the family that he's gifted to me? How do I follow him best in that setting? Action point number two, trust Jesus when you fear. He will keep all of his sheep securely in him. Man, this passage ought to be extremely encouraging to parents who watch their own sheep leave the flock and move on to different phases of life. Right? Because you could, you could be consumed in fear that your son or daughter's future is solely tied to how well you did in preparing them to step out, Right? Did I, did I teach them enough? Did I invest in them enough? Was I clear? Was I, was I, um, was I loving towards them enough to where they're going to hold tight to Jesus? Right? You read passages like this, and it's like, man, I might not have done a good job at all. But thanks be to God, it's not me holding their hand, that it's the Son and the Father who will keep that one from being snatched away. All right? So you send your son and daughter off, and you worry about man, what kind of friend group are they going to get at college or who are they going to start to date at college? Like, is this going to completely derail their faith? It's not. There's not a girl or a guy who can snatch them out of the hands of Jesus, right? There's not a, there's not a bad friend group that can snatch them from the hands of Jesus, right? So when we get fearful from the human side of things, wanting to, to be the one that gets to use their hands, right? that we can trust that there are far stronger hands out there that are securing his sheep, our kids, his sheep, right? Trust Jesus when you're prone to fear. And then last thing, number three, praise Jesus when you fail. For two reasons. One, praise him that you recognize your failure, right? It's a gift of God that when we fall into sin that we are convicted about it. But sometimes as believers, we beat ourselves up. We stone ourselves. Remember, we talked from John chapter 8. We can't forgive ourselves even though we are under the great forgiveness of God, right? And so we begin to even maybe question our own security of salvation. Man, can God still love me? Am I really still a Christian because of what I just did? Like the sin that I just committed, does that disqualify me? Am I out now? Do I have to get re-saved? I've been around individuals who felt that way, that that if they committed something so severe, they had to get resaved and they had to try to get God's love back. But what's he saying here? He says, it's not tied to your goodness, it's tied to his greatness. 
and we can praise Jesus when we fail versus going into a state of discouragement or depression where we're beating ourselves up for our failures. We can praise Jesus when we fail. One, to praise him that we recognize it as a failure, that the Holy Spirit is active in our life enough to where we see our sin as failure and to praise him that he's greater than that failure. Because if, 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 no, if no part of creation can snatch us from his hand, we're incapable of failing out of his hand too, right? We can't, we can't snatch ourselves out of his hand. There's no failure that we can commit that would forfeit the eternal life that's been given to us. Otherwise, it was never really eternal life. By definition, it can't go away. It's eternal. Praise Jesus when you fail. Man, we sang a song that I'd not heard before at Snowbird. I think it's been out for a while. I'm just not, I'm not big in the music scene. So um, I actually thought Snowbird people wrote it. And when I was like, hey, send me the lyrics. They're like, dude, that's like a Matt Papa band song or something. Um, but it's called His Mercy Is More. Man, I'd encourage you to look up. You can YouTube it or whatever. It's, a, it's an awesome song because it talks about our sins being many, but his mercy being far more than our sins. It's just, it's got some awesome truths in there. As we were singing it at Snowbird, it was just, it was encouraging to me because as I'm reading through John chapter 10, I see so much truth in that song from what I'm learning in John chapter 10, that we have a good shepherd who is gracious and merciful to us in our failures, loves us and holds tightly to us. Even when we're trying to, to loosen up the grip on him, even when we are tempted with other things, even when we fail, he keeps holding tightly to us. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Our family worship questions for this week. What are some reasons we should decide to follow Jesus? Why would some people decide they don't want to follow him? Look back through John chapter 10 and see some of the the things about the good shepherd that would give us great reasons to follow him. And what would be some reasons not to? Why would we not listen to him? Number two, what does it mean that we can never be snatched from Jesus's hand? What about when we fail him in sin? Look back at those truths with your family, your kids. Make sure that if I haven't been plain today in their ears that you're plain with them later and that they understand the things that we're talking about. Let's pray together. God, we are very thankful for the truths that we see about you here in this passage. We're thankful that the gospel is not contingent on us being effective in communicating it. We're thankful that the gospel's success is not contingent on how good of a job we do in sharing it with others. God, we're thankful that we can read a passage like this and see that salvation is all of you, that you're the shepherd that calls his sheep, You enable us to hear your voice. You enable us to follow you. And then you hold so tightly to us that nothing can ever snatch us away. There's not a wolf that can come into the flock. There's not a hired hand. There's not a thief or a robber that can come in peddling anything from this world that would draw us away from you. We're thankful that you love us so much that you would never let anything separate us from you. Even when we are sometimes confused and we don't always believe as we should, we thank you that your greatness overrules our immaturity. 
and that you keep holding tightly to us. Just like a kid who's in the parking lot who sees something and wants to run away. God, your grip's too tight on us to let us do so. We thank you that you carry us through the shadow of death and that nothing in the shadow of death can snatch us. We thank you for that security that comes our way. God, remind us constantly that it's due to your greatness and not our goodness. Help us never to build up an image of ourselves in our own minds that you love us when we're good and you dislike us when we're bad. God, protect us from beating ourselves up when we don't live up to our own expectations for ourselves. God, help us to instead praise you when we fail praising you that you help us to see our sin, that you don't leave us in a state where we're blinded to it. Help us to praise you and to be thankful that we, we see our failures. And then God, help us to praise you and to worship you when we're reminded of the fact that we stay a part of your flock, not because we've been good enough, but because you've been great enough. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.